Welcome to the Jongets Games Podcast, where in this episode you'll be hearing the audio from a recent Impressions vlog. In that video, I discussed my initial impressions of A War of Whispers, Imperial Spells and Steam, Roleplayer, and Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Now, all four of these games were played online, and I will discuss how I played each individual one when I am talking about them. Now, I will be covering them in this order, so if you are only interested in hearing about specific games, then go to the description of this podcast to find timestamps for them. At this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that's coming in through the Patreon campaign for John Gets Games. Now, if you enjoy listening to these vlogs instead of watching them on YouTube, then please consider supporting the Patreon campaign, and you can learn more about it by going to patreon.com slash Games. Now, the final thing I'll mention before we start talking about games is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say here today, that you leave those on the YouTube page for this impressions vlog. You can find a link for that in the description, and you can leave your comments there. All right, let's now jump into the games, and the first one I will be covering is A War of Whispers. Now, this is a somewhat recent release, I believe. I don't think it's that old. And uh, the only reason I know about it is because uh, Shut Up and Sit Down covered it uh, with a video review and on their podcast. Um, now, I watched and listened to both of those, and I was pretty intrigued by it. And then I saw that there was a War of Whispers mod on Tabletop Simulator. So I downloaded it, and I was able to play a three-player game of this just about a week ago or so. And uh, let's talk a little bit about how the game plays before I jump into uh, my impressions. Now, the way this game works is each player is effectively a schemer. You have uh, a little player board in front of yourself, and in the center of the table is a big circular map. Now, on that map, there are five different uh, empires, essentially, but each one of us is not one of those empires. Instead, at the start of each game, you are going to shuffle up five tokens, which show those five empires, and you put them face down on your player board. You then take a peek at them, and they tell you how much you care about those empires. So one of them you will care a lot about, another one you will want to do very badly, and then there's kind of a gradient between those two extremes. Now, the way the game works is on a player's turn, they are going to be uh, sending out one of their uh, tokens. I forget what exactly they're called, spies or something like that. Um, and they're sending those out to an open spot around the board. Now, it's a big circular board, and you are going to put this down onto an open location, and you uh, will then have the next person go, and you will go until everybody has done this twice. Then, what you will do is you will perform every single action around the ring of the board, and the person who controls that action is the person who has a token down on that action spot, or if in that empire there's no one before that, then the person who placed that token uh, farthest to the left, I suppose, gets to do all of them. So, effectively, if there there are four different actions, and you start here and go over here, and the first one is blank, the second one has a purple token, the third one is blank, and the fourth one has a red token, well then the purple player gets to do the first and second one because there was no one in front of them, and then the red player gets to do the third and fourth. That also means in this example, if the first two are blank, then it's purple and then red, then the purple player controls the first three actions, and the red player only does the last one. Now, um, what these actions do is just affect the board for those given empires. They might add banners down onto the uh, field, they also might cause uh, that empire to do an attack. Now, attacking between empires is very simple. You just uh, move units from one spot into an adjacent area that has opposing forces, and then you remove them at a one-to-one -one rate, and whoever has cubes left over is going to be in control of that spot. So that is how 
uh, a lot of the actions work realistically, and you're just going to go around the board with different players around the table, influencing these empires in different ways. So what that means is you might have a situation that happened for us in our game, where in the very first round, one person essentially was completely in control of the blue uh, empire, and they attacked the brown empire. Then we got around to the bottom of the board, and that same player who was in control of the blue em uh, empire, who caused that attack to the brown empire, was now in control of the brown empire and caused them to do something else. So this game is all about kind of being the, the spy masters behind the scenes, trying to manipulate the world into a position where you get the most points. Because after you do four rounds of this, you go around the board uh, four times entirely, uh, the game will be over and you will get points based off of the number of cities that each empire controls based off of your modifier. Um, if you have that uh, one empire out there that has maybe uh, three cities and they are your uh, the one you care about the least, then you actually lose a point for every city they have. So that's maybe minus three points. Uh, but one you really care about might give you uh, three points for every city that they control. Now, obviously, all of the players shuffle these up at the start, so it's possible that uh, you could have a very similar setup to somebody else or have a diametrically opposed setup. Now, this is important because um, in uh, the end of every single one of the rounds, you have the option of swapping two of your face-down scoring tokens, but when you do that, you then have to flip them face up so that everyone else around the table can see that. So what this means is, if the best empire for you is just getting beat up like crazy and you just don't see how they could possibly possibly do well for you, well, that probably means both of your opponents want that empire to score really well, so at a certain point, it's going to make sense for you to swap that out, maybe throw it all the way down to the end where um, you don't want to do well, and then throw an empire that's doing really well out there up to the high spot. Now, if that empire is doing well, then it's probably because your opponents also want it to do well, which is also a little bit strange, but you definitely have the ability to um, uh, work around situations that are going very poorly for you. Now, um, one other thing mechanically I'd like to mention uh, I guess two before I talk about my first game. Uh, the first one of those is that at the start of each round, you remove one of your spies and then you put two down. And then the next round, you remove one and put two down. That means the board gets more and more full. Now, there's always going to be the same number of actions that you're going to perform all of the actions around the board, or almost all of them. Uh, it, usually, you're going to play all of them. Uh, but as the game goes on, it gets more and more crowded, so you'll have less opportunities to place one token down and to do three actions because somebody else is maybe going to go in front of you. Now, the last thing I want to mention is one thing that you can do as part of these actions is you can collect empire cards. Now, they are associated with each one of the five empires, and you can spend these cards to do a wide variety of different uh, things that usually break the rules of the game. Uh, maybe let you do an attack not from an adjacent spot, or suddenly drop a whole bunch of banners down onto a location, or uh, do a pretty wide variety of stuff, and you actually spend the card to play it, or you could spend that card plus other cards from your hand to do even more powerful stuff. And it's worth noting that every card has three different effects. The first one just costs the card, the second effect costs two cards of that color, and the third one costs that card and then a card of a different color, so are motivated to get cards from different empires. Uh, so yeah, that's essentially how the game goes. You go through four overall rounds where the uh, spots around the outside of the board get more and more crowded, but the same number of actions happen out there as these empires just fight each other like crazy. Uh, now, we played a three-player game of this, and the three-player game is the loosest as far as the tokens are around the board. Um, at the end of a four-player game, every single spot around the board will be full when the game is over. At the end of a two-player game, I think all but two of the spots will be full, but in a three-player game, there are actually five spots that aren't full. So it seemed like three players is probably the nicest way to go overall. And our play was quite a bit of fun, honestly. Uh, so at the start of the game, all of us were just kind of just throwing stuff out there. Like, obviously, we knew which empires we wanted to do well, but we were just kind of 
pushing stuff around and making stuff happen. Like there were a lot of turns where we're like, I guess I'll go here. I'm not really sure why, but we're kind of feeling things out. And as the game went on, it definitely got tighter and the decisions got a lot tougher overall. Um, now I will say right from the get-go that uh, Shut Up and Sit Down said that this is a, uh, a game kind of like a Game of Thrones that only takes an hour to play. And that was very enticing to me, but in our three-player game, it took easily two hours. Um, maybe that's because we're slow. Maybe that's because we were playing it online on Tabletop Simulator, which maybe takes a little bit longer to manipulate things. But I don't think the online medium really slowed the game down much at all. It just seemed like there is a lot of analysis paralysis that you can fall down into if you choose to. So I think you could play this game in an hour if you're just going a little bit more freeform. But we definitely sank down into a lot of um, calculations because we're looking at what each other is doing and being like, okay, well, it seems pretty obvious that Dave over there really likes uh, that one empire. And I kind of like them too, but does he like them more than me or less than me? And how do I affect this thing over here? And it's definitely possible to like talk to somebody around the table and be like, oh, you can't let them do that. And they'll be like, okay, well, I'll do this. And then you're like, ah, because you did that, I'm now going to do that other thing. So it's not really a negotiation game, but there was a little bit of a negotiation, uh, negotiating happening. And um, things were super not settled until the very last action of the game. Uh, in this game, uh, my friend Dave won, and he won with the very last action of the fourth round. Um, with that very last action, um, a bunch of wacky stuff happened. He spent tons of cards from his hand to kept breaking the rules for this and breaking the rules for that. Uh, you know, one battle turned into a second battle, turned into a third battle because he kept playing cards that let him keep doing battles if there was uh, excess cubes. And when the dust settled, he had just barely squeaked out a victory, where before that very final action of the game, I believe he was in third place. Uh, now, our scores were very close overall because there was a little bit of swapping going on as we kind of saw how things were going. So you kind of want to swap into the things that are already doing pretty well. And the game was won or lost by, um, essentially, uh, Dave and I had the exact same setup, except for um, right in the middle, two of, uh, two of ours were slightly inverted. So he cared a little bit more about one than I did, and I cared a little bit less about it. And that was the one he pushed a little bit over, which gave him the win. So to a certain extent, this is a game where you can try to strategize and whatnot, but this is also a game where there can be drastic, huge turns that come out of nowhere when people start throwing cards around, especially near the end of the game. And you just have to be wary or I guess knowledgeable going into the game that this is the sort of game that you can lose on the very last action of the game because of how things can go. Now, uh, I was really intrigued by the game. Uh, the whole way through, honestly, I enjoyed it the entire game. Um, at one point in that fourth and final round, I was convinced that Nick was gonna have the game and then Dave had that monster blowout turn, which was just <laughs> really impressive overall. And I think all three of us walked away from the game feeling like we would like to try this again. Like it definitely felt different from other games. Uh, it certainly did not feel like a troops on the map style game. And I generally don't like those types of games. And I was curious to see if it felt like that here. Um, now, one thing I was thinking is maybe it's going to feel kind of like Imperial, which is a game that came out many, many years ago. Uh, and in that game, it, you uh, could get stocks in different countries. And then if you were the person who had the most stock in a country, you controlled that country. But here, the person who controlled it was just the person who put that token down onto that spot. So there's no owning of stocks. There's no, uh, no, no people coming in and ripping out your control of that different country. It's really a lot more tactical than that. And I thought the system just worked really well. So uh, I am leaving that one play feeling like I would like to play it again. Uh, I'm curious to try it at four players where the entire board of actions will be full at the very last round. But I'm a little concerned that it might be like a two and a half to three hour long game. Uh, maybe we're just taking this game too seriously, or maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe we're getting some slight thing wrong overall, but we definitely did not see this as a particularly quick game. But uh, that's not going to be enough to uh, push me away from trying it again in the future. 
Okay, let's now move on to the second game, and that one is Imperial Spells and Steam. Now, I did just mention Imperial in that last section, but this one is Imperial like Imperial uh, with a Y in there and whatnot. I'm just going to call the game Spells and Steam to keep it a little bit simpler overall. Uh, now, this is a game that I believe came out at some point in the last six months or so, and I had not heard anything about it until I went to Board Game Geekcon last year, and they had a big advertisement for it on the, the bags that everyone was walking around with. Because of that, my friend Dave decided to check it out from the library, and he ended up playing it with a bunch of my friends, and they loved it so much that uh, they actually bought a copy, and there's a copy in our overall friend group. Now, that copy has been played a bunch, but about two weeks ago, that friend who owns it said that there's a really good tabletop simulator mod for it and wanted to teach it to me. So I was able to play a game. It was uh, the three of us overall. And uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about how it plays, and then I'll talk about um, whether I liked it or not. I'll spoil it right now and say I actually really quite enjoyed this game, but um, talking about how it plays. Now, this is a essentially a logistics-type game. Uh, the theming of it is essentially magical rails. <laughs> it's called spells and steam, right? And what you're doing on this in this game is on your turn, you are manipulating your own personal rondelle. Um, now, it looks like a track in front of you, essentially, where you have a little token and you move it down the track. And the distance that you move is going to dictate how much mana you have to spend on each one of your turns. So you can go really slowly and spend essentially no mana, or you could go really fast, spend a bunch of mana, get to a spot that you like. And then whenever you get to the end of the track, that is the moment that you are essentially going to be um, scoring things out on the board, uh, picking tokens off the board based off of the network that you are building. And then once you get to the end of your track, you pop back over to the front, which is why even though it's a track, it kind of feels like a rondelle that you're just going around and around on. Now, the way the actions work is there is essentially a grid. And whenever you go to a spot to perform that action, you can do as many of the actions underneath it as you want, but you have to spend more mana if you're doing more than one action. Now, at the start of the game, you only have the top row. You can only do one action with each one of your activations. But one of the things you can do at the end of your track is you can add new actions down there. So what that means is you are custom crafting an engine to a certain extent, like you can uh, pair these different actions up so you can have like a mega turn that you keep wanting to hit, or maybe you spread things out and have lots of decent turns as you go throughout the game. Also, you could just not build into that and to do other things while your opponents maybe build into that a lot. And there was definitely some differentiation with that in our play. Now, one of the main things that you're doing in this game is you are placing your own trains down onto the board. Uh, now, you do that by putting it down onto a matching color of the action that you just performed. And when you add these trains out, you need to essentially expand out your overall network. And what you're trying to do is when you get to the end of the track, you want to be able to have your trains on spots that have a certain number of a specific color of the resources so that you can pull those off and then deliver them to a spot that wants it in order to take a little token off the board and get points for it. Now, when you remove these tokens from the board, they never go back onto the board unless certain specific special actions put them back down. So this is a depletion style game where at the beginning of the game, every single hex is uh, occupied with a resource and there are just a couple trains out there. And at the end of the game, there's essentially no resources out there at all. And the board is just covered with players' trains. Now that's 
essentially the basic framework of the game. It's just on your turn, move a certain uh, number of spaces forward and then likely put trains down. Or if you got to the end then pull stuff up and then take a bonus or two. But a big part of this game is asymmetry. Uh, now each player has um, some special um, uh, factors and powers and whatnot. Each player's track in front of them is custom to their specific um, corporation, I guess, railroad company that you are. And uh, so for instance, in the one game that I played, I was, I believe blue and my special ability was there was an action spot on my track that I could go to to just give me more mana. At the start of the game, you have four or five, something like that mana, but there are ways to gain more. And my asymmetric benefit was I had yet another way to gain more. So I always had more mana than my opponents around the table. Now my opponents had other cool stuff. Uh, one of them could uh, essentially discard tokens off the board to teleport their stuff around. I can't remember exactly what they could do, but it seemed really powerful. And another opponent um, was able to discount something really well. Again, I can't remember the specifics, but the, the the end result of what these different asymmetries were was each player felt pretty significantly different to me. And I really liked how all of that worked. Uh, now I've only played the game once, but in general, I was impressed with essentially everything that I saw in this game. Uh, the asymmetries were fun. The action system was nice and simple and yet quite thinky. Like you definitely had to think about it. You also were constantly looking at what your opponents were doing and where they were on their tracks. Because again, it can get really costly to go fast. So for me, I had lots of mana, so I could spend that extra mana to go faster than my opponents to try and beat them to the end of the track in order to pull tokens off the board that they also have trains on so I grab them before they are able to grab them. Of course, they see that I'm doing this and they try to play around that as well. And there are other ways to get um, extra kind of asymmetric bonuses with um, extra cards that you put down onto your board that could be one-time use or multiple use. And you essentially mix all this stuff together to have a really enjoyable logistics-based game that's uh, bright and colorful and uh, really surprisingly easy to get into. Uh, at this point, I've only played it the one time. I've been playing a lot of new games overall, but I am actively interested in playing this one more. Uh, I am quite curious to try some of the other asymmetric uh, abilities. It's my understanding that at least one of them is pretty interactive, and so we did not play with that in our game. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how interactive it is, but it seemed like you could definitely have some feels bad moments if that one specific uh, asymmetric faction is in there, but you could also just not play with it because I don't know off the top of my head, but it seemed like there was six or eight different uh, 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 factions that you could be. So that's a decent amount of variety overall. Uh, now the game itself, our three player game took probably about 90 minutes, which was not uh, bad by any means. And uh, I did pretty well in this game. In fact, I think I just barely came in second place. And I felt pretty good about that considering both of my opponents had played the game multiple times. One of them owned it because they played it a bunch since uh, getting a copy of that BGG Con. Now, I suppose one thing I should mention before I wrap this up is that I did play this online, but if you are to play this um, in real life <laughs> on a table, the box for this game is ridiculous. Uh, this is a level 99 games published game and it's a massive box on the table. And um, I haven't, I don't, didn't look at it specifically really closely, but I believe the actual in real life version of it has all sorts of wonderful little bits and um, uh, uh, pieces inside of it. It was a, I believe a Kickstarter game and it's the kind of game that's gonna take a decent amount of your shelf space. So while I really enjoyed playing this game and I'm looking forward to playing it more, 
I'm not sure if it would be worth taking up the shelf space of two games. So that's definitely something to keep in mind, but uh, the tabletop simulator version was was a lot of fun to play. And so I certainly look forward to playing that one more and the real life version uh, in a few months uh, when I'm able to play games with friends again. Uh, but I will likely just rely on playing my friend's copy instead of trying to source my own. All right, let's now move on to the third game, and that one is Roleplayer. Now, this is not a new game, but it's new to me. <laughs> it came out back in 2016, and honestly, I have been wanting to play this game for the last four years or so, essentially since I first heard about it, because it seemed like a lot of fun. Now, mechanically, the way this game works is you are playing a dice drafting game where you are thematically creating a role-playing character. Uh, now, you're not actually going to be playing that character. You're just kind of building out their stats and whatnot, and the way it works as at the beginning of each round, you are going to roll uh, dice equal to the number of players plus one, and then you sort them from low dice to high dice, the regular D6s, on the spots in the middle of the board. Now, after you do that, the players are going to be drafting those, and the spot that they take from is going to not only dictate the die that they get to put down onto their player board, but also their initiative for taking cards from the middle of the board, um, which can do things like give you equipment, which will give you points, uh, could be weapons, which give gives you some manipulation abilities. It also might give you uh, skills and traits, which give you uh, things that you can do and also other ways to score victory points. Now, um, all of that is nice. So obviously being able to pick those cards earlier is good, but that means you are taking a lower value die. And in general, you want high value dice in this game. Not always, but in general you do. So there's a nice back and forth balance there where you might take a low value die right now uh, for really good initiative because there's a card out there that you really, really want, or maybe you don't like any of the cards. So you say, well, I'll just take the highest value uh, uh, die that I can. Um, so then what you do is you put the die down onto your board and you have a series of rows and you have to put them the die all the way to the leftmost empty spot. Now you're going to be filling up this board throughout the game and when the game is over, every single spot on your board will be full. And what you are trying to do is match up to a couple of different types of puzzles. Uh, now, one thing that you get at the start of the game is a class uh, card that tells you how you are going to be scoring your different rows. Um, or maybe it was not the class card. I can't remember the specifics, but you get a card that thematically makes sense that will say things like, um, you want your strength row to have 17 or more pips in it. Now that's a lot considering you never put more than three dice in a row. So 17 or more pips means that those are all sixes or it's two sixes and a five. So you have to put really high value stuff there, or there are other ones that just give you maybe less uh, stars, which are points for hitting 14 points or more or something like that. Now that's not the only way you get points. Um, there are several other ways. Uh, there is a pattern that you're gonna be trying to match up with has which has to do with, I believe, your thematic backstory. Um, and on top of that, you also have a kind of moral compass that you are uh, moving throughout the game. And this generally moves as you take specific cards and as you activate specific skills. Now that is also gonna give you different victory points. So this is a game all about trying to manipulate all of these puzzles to work out to give you the most points possible. Now, one big part of the game is the fact that each one of the attribute rows in front of you has an ability that you will perform when you put a die down onto it. So this lets you do things like maybe re-roll a die or um, add value to a dice. You may be able to flip a die over or do um, several other types of things like that. So not only are you trying to put a die down into a row that's good from a scoring perspective, but also into a row that has a good action for you to be able to use in that moment. So what this means is this is a 
pretty thinky game overall. Like the theme is kind of light and charming overall. Like you're building a character and when the game is over, you can see how strong you are and how charismatic you were and you know how many points you get for all these things. You know, did you end up on the right part of the moral compass? But from a mechanical perspective, when you are in the middle of the game, there is a lot of thinking to be done. That decision where you are figuring out which die to take can be very crucial. You have to look at all of the cards out there and decide how badly do you want to pick up any of them in particular? Um, maybe a couple of them are really good, so you want to make sure you're on the lower end, but that means you have to put this die down into a row, which means you'll never be able to score off that number of pips for that row, and maybe that's fine. Maybe you just say, okay, well, I won't get those points. I'll get points another way because there's really no way, it seems, to do everything perfectly, so you're going to have to uh, do some things not quite as well. But, of course, you're motivated to try and to do everything perfectly, and that can lead to a lot of thinking. Uh, so, overall, Overall, uh, we finished this game and it wasn't too long. It was probably about 90 minutes or so. And the general vibe I had around the table is that we all enjoyed the game, but I don't think it blew any of us away. Um, I feel like I would certainly not mind playing this game a couple more times um, just because I enjoyed the overall puzzle, but it, it did seem like there was a decent amount of downtime, even though the game was not overly long. And yeah, it's really hard to describe exactly why, but a game can be fun without being incredibly exciting, and that's kind of where it landed for me. Uh, now, I remember way back when Roleplayer came out, it was around the same time as Sagrada, which is also a dice drafting game where you are putting them down in a very puzzly way to try and get the most points that you can. Uh, that game was all about putting together uh, stained glass uh, um, windows, essentially, and I wanted to love that game, played it a couple times, and ended up getting rid of my copy. And I think if I had both of these games in my collection, um, I would definitely get rid of Sagrada before I got rid of Roleplayer because to me it seemed like there was a little bit more going on there with Roleplayer. Like I enjoyed the extra layers of trying to figure out which cards to take to synergize off of different things. And from a thematic perspective, it was kind of fun seeing the overall character that I had created when the game was over. So yeah, it was an enjoyable time for everybody. Uh, no one is necessarily clamoring to get it played again, but I do hope at some point in the future to get another play of Roleplayer in. At this point, we've reached the fourth and final game I will be discussing today, and that is Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Now, this is a little bit unusual for me because technically this game is not fully published yet. Uh, I played this on Tabletop Simulator, and it had a Kickstarter a couple of months ago, and at this point, the actual backer version has not been shipped out. Now, generally, I don't cover prototypes in my impressions vlog, but it did seem to me that the Tabletop Simulator version is the final version of the game, and the game looked pretty interesting to me, so I learned to the rules and taught it to three friends so we could play a four-player game of it. Uh, now, I, I will say that I have no relationship with Garfield Games at this point, and I did not back the Kickstarter, so I do not anticipate getting a copy at this point, but uh, let's talk a little bit about how this game goes, and I will try to be really brief because there's a lot going on to this game. Now, at its heart, this is a deck-building rondelle-style game. Now, in the middle of the table, there is a big map, and you put it together randomly at the start of each game, and there is essentially an outer track on the map and an inner track, and some connections between with roads. Now, every player has a Viscount, and that Viscount is going to go clockwise around this map, going from the outer ring to the inner ring, and then back out, depending on 
what you want to do. And the way you move is on each turn, you are going to play a card from your hand and that card will tell you how far your Viscount will move. So you have to move that far and you can spend some coins to go a little bit farther if you want to. And then you will do an action. Now there are four different actions in the game. Two of them you can do if your Viscount is on the outer ring and the other two you can do if your Viscount is on the inner ring of the map. Now, when you do an action, you look down to your little player board because when you play a card down, you actually play it down to a three card tableau on a sliding row. Now, at the start of each turn, you actually slide your cards over. So one goes into your discard pile that leaves two left over and then you play a new card. So you have three cards in front of you. So it's kind of an ongoing, uh, always changing tableau. Now, when you do an action, you look at all of the cards in front of you and maybe some other bonuses and you count up the number of icons that match the action that you are doing. And then that is the power of the action that you are doing. Now there's a little bit more to it though, because on the middle of the map, each one of the different zones has a person card on it. Now, when you do an action, you have the ability to spend coins to essentially dismiss that person from the middle of the board in order to get the benefits of the ability that are uh, printed in the top right corner of that card and any icons on that card. So if I want to do a trading action and I have two trade icons in front of me and the area that I'm at where my Viscount is has a card that has two more trading actions, well, maybe I pay two coins, dismiss that card, get a quick bonus, and then have two plus two or four of these um, trading actions that I can now use to turn those uh, bags into gold or something like that. So that's definitely something you have to consider is not only um, the icons in front of you, but the uh, changing icons on the cards in the middle of the table. Now you can also spend uh, resources that are uh, dependent on each action to boost those different actions, but um, that is the kind of the crux of this game overall, because um, you need to keep all of that in mind as you are planning out your turns. Now I did say that this is a deck building game and that's because at the near the end of your turn, you also have the ability to recruit the face up card that's in that zone with your Viscount. Now that's gonna cost coins that are printed on the card. So what that means is during the action, you could actually spend some coins to dismiss a card from that stack, get some bonuses, and then later on in the round, buy the card that was actually underneath that previous card that was then revealed. Or maybe you don't dismiss the top card because you want to recruit that specific card into your deck. Now, when you recruit these cards, they go right into your discard pile. And then when you run out of a deck, you shuffle up your discard pile and then keep playing through those cards. There are uh, many ways in this game to uh, discard through your deck to go faster and quite a few ways to permanently lose cards from your hand, uh, from your deck overall. And when you do that, you get coins and you kind of need coins for a lot of things in this game. Uh, they let you recruit more people, dismiss people, as well as move your uh, Viscount faster. So all of those things are important. Now, I'm not gonna go into the specifics of all four of the different actions. I can just tell you that on the outer ring, you will trade to spend the trading actions to get different things. You will also be able to spend building actions to put buildings onto the board, which unlock different bonuses for you. And on the inner track, you can essentially put people down into this little castle and the castle has three different tiers. And if you have um, three people in a tier, then they essentially explode and send somebody up to the higher tier and then send other people around. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. I'm trying to gloss over it, but essentially you can have lots of cascading reactions in the middle of the table and you get bonuses every time you put people into different spots. Uh, the last action lets you spend ink um, on the inner ring in order to take these manuscripts, which will give you um, immediate bonuses and end game scoring. So, in this game, you are essentially playing a card, moving your Viscount, maybe dismissing a person, doing an action, maybe recruiting a person, 
and then your turn is effectively over and the next person gets to go. There's a lot more going on and I'll probably touch on one or two more things as I'm going, but I now want to talk about the experience of playing the game. Uh, now this was a full game. It was four players and it took a while. <laughs> I think our four player game probably cracked about three hours, two and a half, three hours. Uh, the teach itself was easily 40 minutes. Um, and then part of that's because of my unfamiliarity with the game. I had to keep going back to the rules, even though I had just read the rules. But once we got into the swing of things and we were um, playing through turns and going for it, it seemed like things went at a reasonable clip. Like there was not that much downtime overall because you can do a lot of planning. Um, realistically, your opponents don't really block you from doing things for the most part. If you land on the same spot as they do, well, they get a tiny little benefit, but not something that would cause you to not land where they are. Uh, the biggest impact in the game, realistically, is somebody going to a spot and dismissing or recruiting a card that you really wanted. Um, there are a couple other ways, but by and large, this is a somewhat multiplayer solitaire game with um, some uh, indirect interaction. I guess I don't want to oversell the solitaire nature of it. You definitely need to pay attention to what your player, your opponents are doing. Now, in this game, I kind of neglected the deck building part. And by that, I mean, I recruited too many people and I did not really recruit towards a specific type of action. And it seems like lots of cards in this game have a couple of actions on them. And I can't help but wonder if when you play Viscounts well, if you need to try and hone in on two out of the four actions and try to make your deck good at those two things. Because of course, when you play multiple cards, multiple turns in a row that have the same icons, you can essentially have a weak building action and then a good building action and then a great building action as you play out more cards that have these building icons that can kind of cluster together to have much more momentous turns. So I've only played the game once and I can't help but wonder if if you play this game really well, if you just kind of start doing only like half of the game a lot instead of the other halves because you have to really hone in on your deck and make sure your deck is good and efficient at having these really big explosive turns. And you can't really do that if your deck tries to do everything. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but in this play, I kind of just took cards because I thought they were cool. I'm like, oh, that card has a cool effect, I'll take it. Oh, that card has a cool effect, I'll take it. And at the end of the game, my deck had a lot of different icons in it. Now, I don't want to oversell uh, this as being a bad thing. Um, I did not win the game, but I did pretty darn well. Uh, I think I was kind of in the middle of the pack or so, so I did not necessarily uh, play the game poorly, and maybe you can play really well with a uh, four-action strategy. I've only played this game once, so I can't really say. Uh, but there are a lot of other factors that come into who is going to win the game. Uh, now, one thing that I really want to talk about has to do with the morality track, Corruption track, I guess it's called. Uh, now, this is a really neat idea where every single player has a board in front of them with a track down the middle, and on the left side is a corruption token, and on the right side is a virtue token. Now, as you're doing different things in the game, you're going to be moving these tokens um, closer and closer to each other, and the moment they meet, they will then be stuck together, and they then move back and forth together. Now, at the end of each one of your turns, you have to check and see if your two tokens have met. If they have, then you will perform an action where essentially you get to um, do something right now and then everyone else around the table will also be affected. Now, this is gonna depend on how corrupt or virtuous you were, like where that uh, that meeting of the two tokens was when it's the end of your turn. Because again, they can meet, but you can still push them around to a decent amount. Now, if you are really corrupt, then you are probably going to be taking these debt cards and debt cards are worth negative points at the end of the game if you don't get rid of them, but you will also be getting a decent amount of money 
versus if you're really virtuous, then you will be getting some deeds cards, which are worth points at the end of the game, but you're not really going to be getting money. Um, now, your opponents will also get things based off of other things. There's these skull wild icons that affect a lot of the uh, morality in this game, but I'm not going to go into the specifics of that right now, but it does mean that you need to pay attention to where your opponent's morality tracks are because that really could have an effect on the actions that you are trying to take. Um, now, the last thing that I want to um, go into a little bit more is how the game ends. Now, I mentioned that if you're corrupt, you might find yourself taking debts, and if you're virtuous, you will take the deeds, and the game is going to end when the deck of debts or deeds runs out. Um, the number of cards in there is going to fluctuate based off of the player count, and this is a really interesting part of the scoring because when the game is over, the deck that is empty is going to dictate bonus points for the opposite type of deck. So what that means is um, if the uh, debt deck runs out, then suddenly there is a big amount of points for the player who has the most upgraded deeds. And vice versa, if the deeds deck runs out, then there's a big amount of points that goes to the player with the most amount of um, fixed debts. Um, now, I said upgraded and fixed. You essentially have to make these better through different actions. But in our play, it was the deed deck that ran out. So that means 12 points went to the person who had the most um, resolved debt, and that was the player who won. They won by, I think, a point or two. But at the end of the game, there was just, I think, like two debts left in the debt stack. So if things had gone a little bit differently and the debt stack had gone out, then a different player would have gotten 12 bonus points for having the most resolved deeds, and that would have given them 12 points. They came in last place with the way the game ended for us, but they could well have won the game if it had gone the other way. So um, paying attention to those two stacks is really important, and it's just one more of the numerous things you have to pay attention to while you're playing the game. Now, um, I think overall, I enjoyed the play of it. It definitely went longer than I was expecting, and I found the game overall very fascinating. Uh, like from a, a game design perspective, I thought uh, it had a ton of really awesome ideas. Like that corruption track is such a cool idea. I remember when I taught it, one of my friends like exclaimed out loud that it was like, that is so neat. And I was like, yeah, I know that does seem neat. I hope it's actually good. And it was good. It was a really cool mechanic. I really liked the idea of playing the cards out into this little um, revolving door tableau thing in front of you. And there are many ways you can kind of restructure the cards in front of you. So uh, one player actually played played a criminal card out with a wild token, a wild icon on it, and that criminal card never left his tableau for the entire game. It just kept getting close and then got reshuffled over and close and then reshuffled over because there's an action that lets you reshuffle your board. So you can have a lot of control over these things. And I found myself leaving the game feeling like I would really like to play this game again, but probably not at four players, just because of the overall length of it. I think uh, three players is what I'm much more interested in playing, and I have three friends who know how to play it already. So uh, this is one that I have not come back to yet, but I want to explore it. Um, as I said before, I am a little bit concerned that maybe the best way to play the game is to kind of hone in on one or two of the actions and just like be a person that just builds the whole game long and then that's all they did was built really well and they won because of it. Or maybe there's a flaw to that strategy and I just don't see it because I've only played the game once. Uh, so yeah, I definitely want to explore more with this. Um, it's possible this could be a game I would be interested in trying to get a copy of, although at this point um, it makes no sense to try and get a copy. The copies don't actually exist out there and I may as well try to play this one online uh, a couple more times to see if it's a worthy investment for me because I have to make sure that I actually enjoy playing the game versus just being fascinated at all of the mechanical design decisions in it. I am a bit of a sucker for creative, interesting ideas in the mechanics of games. And this game has that coming out of 
every one of its uh, edges. So uh, in that respect, I'm a little bit blinded by all of that awesomeness, but I'm also a little bit reticent because maybe there's just too many of these really fascinating, cool ideas to actually come together into a game that I do want to keep playing over and over again. So uh, yeah, I am cautiously optimistic about uh, quite enjoying this one in the future. Uh, after one play, I definitely would like to play it more. Well, that's going to wrap up all of the games I'll be talking about today. Uh, I can tell you right now that I've been playing a lot more new games, and I'll be covering four more of them next week, so definitely keep your eyes out for more of these uh, impressions vlogs. Uh, to a certain extent, it seems like I am playing more new games to me than I used to, just because there is an almost infinite number of new games that I can play out there on the internet, and I have a lot of time and a lot of friends online who uh, want to play these games with me, so um, I will probably keep putting these out with, um, you know, obviously those screenshots of me playing the game instead of photos of me playing the game. And uh, hopefully this uh, still worked overall as a medium with those screenshots. Uh, please let me know if uh, you are enjoying this uh, coverage of me playing games online versus uh, playing games in person. And yep, I think that's going to bring this podcast to a close. Now, again, if you have any questions or comments about anything that I've said, then please click the link to the vlog that's in the description of this podcast and leave those over there as comments. Thanks for listening.